transplant, plant, and I'm grateful we're covering Al-Anon High. It startled me a little. I wasn't prepared for that. And I have been a member of the Al-Anon family group since July 7, 1984. And I will tell you that I came to Al-Anon in Texas because we give dates in Texas. The A people in Texas assume that if you don't give a dry date, you don't have one. And I think that perhaps we just took it up in Al-Anon. Twenty years in Al-Anon does not make me a savior. It makes me a survivor, okay? Let's get that understood before we start. I would be remiss in my good manners if I didn't thank the committee for the invitation to this beautiful place for the delicious food and the warm welcome and the gorgeous flowers. And I have looked forward to it. Now, ever since I've known I was coming, I've always stopped strangers in the street and told them about it. I've really been excited about it. And uh, if you'll let me, I'd like to just chat with you a minute. Because that makes me more comfortable with you. And one of the gifts of Al-Anon is that I'm allowed to do whatever makes me comfortable. I was, I would like, um, I was reminiscing. My stepfather, who reared me, along with my mother, was career Navy. And he spent a great deal of time in the islands here during the 20s and 30s when I'm sure life was simpler and he thought the most beautiful place on earth. And my first, the first time I ever heard of Hawaii, I was a very little girl. And he had pictures and albums. And I remember looking at a snapshot of him in a grass skirt. And that wasn't, you know, how I knew him. And I thought that was just hilariously funny. But Hawaii went on my Sunday list right then, and it stayed there ever since. Very few places look exactly the way they're supposed to look. England does. San Francisco does. And of what I've seen so far of Hawaii, it does too. I think we all have these images, and it's so nice to, to be able to see the real thing. I appreciate so much being met at the airport. I got here crumpled and cranky and hot and tired and hungry and miserable and uh, it was wonderful to have people who understood and who said, that's okay. You know, I feel that way too after that flight. <laughs> and the jet lag is gone and I'm delighted that I'll have a little while with you. If the humidity doesn't kill me, I keep thinking if I take a deep breath, I'm going to drown. <laughs> I don't know how you, you all keep a hairdo. <laughs> In Texas, we wrinkle early, but our hair curls. You know, you can't have it all. I have for the last five or six years, when I'm allowed to share Al-Anon in other places, I have tried to be as open and as vulnerable as I'm able to be, to take the risks that that implies, in order to speak to you from my heart, because you told me that that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart. And I very much want to reach your hearts this afternoon. To do that, I'll have to ask you to listen to me with your heart and to love me back while I'm talking. See, for years I could talk about the program, but not about me. And I could lecture very well, but I could not tell you how I felt. Much easier to tell you what I thought. But I'm here to participate in, in your conference and not to perform. And I want to be as honest as I know how today. Some of you have told me that you've heard me other places or that you've heard tapes. Well, you could have had a nap this afternoon because I only have one story. I'm not going to go out and do it over again, so I'll have something different to tell you. <laughs> if ever it is the same story. Because I don't know where we were, you and I, if we have met before. I don't know where we were geographically or, or on our spiritual journey. But I have done a great deal of living and hurting and growing and laughing and rejoicing and loving the last few years, and I dare say you have too. And so we do meet at a different place today. I came into al kicking and screaming and clutching my halo and protesting to everyone who would listen that I was saying thank you. I had not done the drinking and I did not need the therapy. I am so grateful that God led me to a group of people who were serious about recovery, a group of people who were practicing the principles of this program, so that what I know of them today, I know because they were practiced lovingly and tenderly on me, not because I read them, 
And not because somebody told me about them, but because they were practiced on me. These people loved me when I was so unlovable. They tolerated me when my behavior was well nigh intolerable. They, they forgave me when I think about it now, and I was really unforgivable. And I began to get an idea of what the program was about. I learned that it wasn't a ladies' auxiliary, or a coffee clutch, or a sewing circle. A group of people who wanted recovery and were willing to help me get it too, if that's what I wanted. I used to get this far in my story, and I would say, I guess I was a typical Al-Anon when I got to the program. But I have learned that that brings different pictures to different minds, and I'm careful about using the term now. In fact, I like to clear up a few misconceptions along about here, because typical Al-Anon depends on what your idea of one is. There are some rumors in our fellowships. One of them is that all alcoholics, without exception, are either handsome or beautiful, intelligent, charming, sensitive, talented, and sexy. Have you heard that one? I never get any argument on that. <laughs> Nor do I have any. But the other half of that rumor is that they are inevitably married to dull, mousy people. <laughs> if that's your idea of a typical Eleanor, you can forget it. <laughs> and then there is the uh, misconception that during the drinking years, the non-alcoholics in alcoholic homes always sat home Knitting, you know, Priscilla Pureheart. While the alcoholic did his thing, some of us did. And some of us did the same things the alcoholic did, and we did them cold sober. So I think we have a real need to have no illusions about each other today. It comes out later in my story that I was an English teacher for 22 years, so it will not surprise you that I want to define our terms. You may not have this problem in Hawaii, but we have it in Texas in that sometimes well-meaning members of Alcoholics Anonymous refer to anyone in their families as Al-Anons. So just to clarify things, an Al-Anon is a member of an Al-Anon family group who attends meetings regularly and who works the Al-Anon program. I don't know a label for other non-alcoholics, but if you hear anyone else talking about Al-Anon, don't listen, because that person is uninformed. People like that are not carrying the message, they're spreading the disease. <laughs> and I learned some things that Al-Anon is not. It is not a group of cookie bakers and coffee makers, nor is it a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism. We don't presume to do that in any way. And we're not a bunch of AA groupies. <laughs> the Al-Anon program does not promise to save marriages, only sanity. And when I first heard that, I thought both of mine were in fine shape. <laughs> you told me that happily ever after might not mean walking hand in hand into the sunset. But happily ever after means my personal recovery. And that you could promise me. You said this program is for you. The best analogy I can think of is my mother's death. She died in 1965, and I thought I could not stand it. She was the best friend I had. I had flown back home to be with her several times during the last months of her illness. And on my last visit there, I had stepped out into the hall in the hospital because I was crying, and a woman in a room across the hall beckoned to me. This was someone I've never seen before or since. And she said to me, your mother's going to be all right. And I said, oh, you don't understand. Her illness is terminal. She said, I didn't say she's going to get well. I said she's going to be all right. And Mother did not get well, and she has been all right ever since. It's as if when I got to you, you said to me, you're going to be all right. To which I would have said, oh, but you don't understand, my husband is barely sober. And you would have said, I didn't say you're going to get a sober husband. I said, you're going to be all right. Or I would have said, I have a very sick, fragile marriage. And you would have said, we didn't say we could save your marriage. We said, you're going to be all right. Because that's the message I got. And I have been for these 20 years. And better than that, I know that I will be. Well, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. And I agree with Father Martin, who says, 
that when he's sitting out there and you're up here, he says, you're playing with my life. Don't tell me how sick you got without telling me how well you have gotten. And so I'd like to spend as much time as possible telling you and sharing with you my recovery. It would be a very false kind of humility if I pretended I don't have any, because through the grace of God, I do. And besides, if you don't get weller in 20 years, you haven't been trying. Uh, in the sheets, is allowed to make up their own words. It's always in our contract, so I can say weller if I want to. I was born and grew up in Florida. I lived in Jacksonville on the Atlantic until I was 10, and then in Pensacola until I married. Just to refresh your geographical memory, Jacksonville is on the Georgia border, Pensacola is on the Alabama border, and this is very much the Deep South. Besides, I am a fourth-generation Floridian. We were not tourists. Uh, <laughs> tourist was a bad word when I was growing up. If I wanted to do something that my mother thought in questionable taste, she would say, don't act like a tourist. <laughs> One result has been that I'm a very good tourist when I go other places. <laughs> my father was a very handsome, intelligent, charming, sensitive, talented alcoholic. <laughs> he was violent. Uh, it was a long time before I could talk about this from the podium, but I think it needs saying because it happens in some alcoholic homes. And I was a badly abused child. I was not sexually abused, thank God. But I was badly battered and badly beaten. And I used to think that was so shameful that I couldn't mention it. And I felt increasingly safe with you through the years and have been able to be increasingly honest. I think it's important that it be said when it was the fact. And we were poor. I am not talking about doing without luxuries. I am talking about no food, inadequate clothing, inadequate shelter, and there is nothing ennobling about poverty. It is a debasing and a degrading way to live. It does nothing to improve the human character. I have to mention it because it's to tell you that we live in a very blighted area of town, and even in that area, children in the neighborhood were not, were not allowed to play with me. I know now it's because their parents were understandably apprehensive about the kind of thing that went on at our house. But I didn't know that then. And I felt rejection and I felt rage. And I thought I'll get back at them some way, somehow. And it turned out that I could do that in school. I could beat the socks off of them and I did and I relished every moment of it. And I have to remember because it was when I was this young that I bought into a set of man-made rules. I felt that if I did the right thing, you might not like me, but you would, by golly, respect me. And people did. And I did the right thing until I got to you and you told me that there are such things as spiritual laws and that they transcend all the other rules that I had been following. I got to you so rigid, so unchanging, so unbendable. And people like that, as you know, will break. My mother and father were divorced when I was eight, and shortly after that, a couple of years, she married She married a very fine man who, as it happened, didn't drink at all. We were not ever close, but we were genuinely fond of each other because we both loved my mother. And things were a little better. At least we had enough to eat and wear. We had a house. But college was considered a real luxury, and we couldn't afford that. So when time came for me to go away to college, the thinking was, well, all right, if you can pay for it, and if you really want to, okay. And after I got to Texas, I wanted to go to Baylor University, and that's where it happens to be. My mother said, well, it's all right with me if you want to go to college in Texas. But she said, make up your mind that you'll spend the rest of your life out there, because you'll end up marrying a Texan, and they don't transplant, she said. <laughs> I told her I was going to do no such thing, but I did, and they don't, and I have, and so... She was right about that, as she was everything else. Texas, as I'm sure you know, is a state of mind. My father-in-law said that he reared his children never to ask anyone where he was from, because he said, if a man is from Texas, he'll tell you, and if he's not, it's not nice to embarrass him. He also said there are no ex-Texans. 
He said, there are those who are forced to live somewhere else for a while, sometimes for 50 or 60 years, but they're never ex-Texans. <laughs> I cannot imagine living anywhere else. There are four months out of the year when it is not fit for human habitation. <laughs> but then, um, there are the blue bonnets. And there are those vast blue skies. And there are those remarkable people. And I hope you love where you live. I feel sorry for people who don't. I think it was inevitable that I marry an alcoholic. Because the first man I loved, my first male orientation, was to an alcoholic. But I have to tell you that I didn't date anyone who drank. Ever. <laughs> this was not righteousness. This was not uh, feeling superior. This was fear. This was terror. You know, I had had drinking. And Charles did not drink at all when we married. And we dated four years before we married. We did, it, we did everything the right way. I told you I followed the rules. He had a master's degree and a job before we got married. And I had finished school and taught school a year to repay a, a loan that I had had to help me get through. You told me when I got to you some years later that his not drinking wasn't indicative of anything. You said drinking is just a symptom of alcoholism. It's as if he had tuberculosis and he had not yet started hemorrhaging. That the illness was there, but that symptom had not yet appeared. And I didn't know that, of course. I do believe now what you told me, and that is that sick people marry sick people. And they rear sick children. And I hope you won't let anyone tell you anything different. For many years I taught those children, and I reared two of my own. And when I hear someone saying, oh, I'm so grateful the drinking in our home didn't affect our children, I cringe. You know, I want to say, if you believe that, I have some swampland in Florida I'd like to talk to you about, you know. In, in California, the Alanons say every pot finds a lid that will fit it. And in Colorado... <laughs> The Al-Anons say the horns on the heads of the alcoholics just fit the holes in ours. <laughs> this is a mutual illness, and we will find each other. Charles and I had matching neuroses, and we nourished them in each other. And I would have denied this with my last breath at the time. I had a need to be needed. This is how I got myself worth. I did not feel worthy just inherently by living, being. But I felt worthy when I rescued and when people were dependent on me. So, of course, I found someone who would give me a chance to rescue him regularly and who would be dependent. And I must stop and say that in his own recovery, he overcame that long, long ago. I would not leave you thinking that that was, that was a permanent illness with him. Our Alamon literature says, and I'm translating loosely, that healthy, stable, well-adjusted people are not attracted to alcoholics. It says that we were child calling to child. And I have, I have come to believe it. That um, somehow we will find someone, if we are that obsessive, with whom we can be obsessed. Well, we were blindsided by alcoholism. We went from no drinking at all to blackouts. In about five or six years. I didn't see it coming. I really didn't. Charles was never violent. He didn't drink in bars. He drank at home. He always said, when you talk, that's the way you raise a crop of Alanon's malatines is to drink at home. He didn't hit the hospitals or the jail. He said again that you don't get arrested driving a sofa. <laughs> and so I didn't suspect alcoholism. That was not the pattern I was used to. We have some slogans we lived by during those six, six years before you gave me some other slogans. One was, what will people think? Did you have that one? And don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. And then, of course, it's not that bad yet. You had that one. And did you ever play Guess What I'm Mad At? I thought you did. Charles used to say that I could ask him a question, answer it myself, and go away mad. I did everything wrong during the drinking years. I protected and I rescued and I lied for him and I played let's pretend as diligently as he ever drank. I was as obsessed with him as he was obsessed with drinking. This is a symptom of untreated alanonism, you know. 
Have you heard of the Eleanor he was drowning? Someone else's life flashed in front of her eyes. I would like you to think that I stayed with this man out of love and loyalty. But I did not. I stayed with him out of pride. And when I'm this far from home, I might have to explain a little what that is. I don't know now, but in the Deep South, women of my generation were given a specific kind of upbringing. We were expected to flash our dimples and flutter our eyelashes and swish our skirts. And it was understood that we were made of steel and we could cope. And one did not air one's dirty linen in public. And he didn't live with a man who criticized him to other people. And besides, his rating was the first thing I had ever run across in my life that I could not manage or control. And my answer was to try harder. You heard our preamble. We tried to force solutions. In the Peanuts cartoon strip, one of my favorites is Charlie Brown's little sister, Sally, learning long division. And she says to Charlie Brown, how many times will 24 go into 12? And he says, 24 won't go into 12. And she says, it will if you push. <laughs> that was my thinking, so I just tried harder. I had married considerably above myself. Now, Charles used to say I shouldn't say that. I don't know any other way to say it. I had married into a family that had had a great deal of money and still had a great deal of prestige and status. And we lived in West Texas in the town of Odessa. But this family had lived for a long, long time, and there was nobody not allowed to play with me. And I needed that very much. But I would look at this young man who had everything, handsome, brilliant, charming, and figure, I'm the one who started out with inauspicious beginnings. You know, I'm the one who could match childhood sob stories with anybody. And I had no understanding of nor tolerance for people who messed up their lives. Because I thought if I could cope, anybody on earth could cope. And so I kept trying harder, keeping the rules, and I didn't know they were the wrong ones. Now, I did a few things right even during these years. I used to think sort of by accident. I know now this was by the grace of God. For instance, I never thought of him nor called him nor referred to him as a drunk. I was married to a very fine man who drank too much, who had what my Irish grandmother called the failing. And I knew at some level, I knew that he was sick. At least I knew that nobody would be that way because he wanted to be. And I did not criticize him to our children. I could after he got sober. But I didn't during those years so that when he was able to reach out to them tentatively in love, they were willing to be loved. And I had a God whom I worshipped and served. Not God as I understand him today. But I hope that God as I understand him today is not the same as it will be in another 20 years. I'd like to think that I keep growing in that direction. And I had a doctor who was Al-Anon before I got to you, and I say that because this man used to say to me, you have got to do what's necessary for your sanity and your serenity regardless. And then he knew just which button to push. He said, your children need you. And if you said need to me, I was putty in your hands. This was the doctor who suggested that I return to teaching school. I had taught for three years and then had the children and had stayed home now 12 years, I guess, something like that. Besides, the rules said that no good mother worked outside her home. And I had to think about this. I am not a very spontaneous person. I'm trying to learn to be. So I thought about it for a year before I went back to teaching. And there are those who do not consider 150 17-year-olds a day to constitute therapy. There are those who have hinted to me that if you weren't already sick, that would do it. And I have to say, and I never talk without saying this, don't criticize kids to me. You're going to have to fight me first. And as gently as I know how to tell you, I will tell you that I probably know more of them than you do. I have collected several thousand. I will even venture to say that I know them better. Because in an English class, once they trust you, they will write and talk about how they feel. And that gave me an advantage that I always thought perhaps their math or science teachers did not have. And I am sold on young people. I know some of them who have trouble growing up, but my world is filled with people who have trouble grown up. I like their eagerness for living. I like their values so much sounder than my generation. We were so hung up on things. I like their concern for this planet on which we live that my generation did not know. 
and and I like the the giggles and I like the sang. And they're touchers. I never touched a teacher in my life. And I was had regularly and constantly. Hit too sometimes, you know. Fade sort of black and blue. Um yeah, it was what not, you know, one long honeymoon every day when I wish the retroactive birth control. But not usually <laughs> Charles never stopped trying to find an answer. We didn't suspect alcoholism because he didn't drink in the morning. He still had a wife and family. And he had a job because he worked for his father. And so he began hunting solutions. He went uh, to ministers and to lay counselors and to medical doctors, and he went through clinics. He went through both our local psychiatrists rather quickly. And finally, after some years of this, a business acquaintance of his suggested a counselor who did family counseling in Odessa at that time. And strange eccentric lady, it'll tell you something about her when I tell you that his appointment was at 12.30 a.m. It will tell you something about him when I tell you he was there. He kept it. And uh, he had been seeing her about six weeks. It was January of 1964. There are moments in my life, and I'll bet in yours, that I remember with such clarity. I remember the room and everything in it. These are the lucid moments that I think we are granted sometimes. And she called me. I was still home from school for the Christmas vacation. And she said, your husband is an alcoholic. This is a family illness and I need to talk with you too. And I said, you're out of your mind and hung up. <laughs> now that was not the South upbringing. I had been brought up that if there's someone you can't like, you can be kind but cool. And I didn't even want to talk to her. She had really hit a nerve. But before I could leave the room, the phone rang again, and before I could say hello when I picked it up, she said, hey, wait a minute, I know what you've been through. Well, she couldn't know. I hadn't told anybody. <laughs> and I remember standing there with the phone in my hand, and I who thought that all the tears had long since been shed, I stood there and I cried and I cried and I cried. That was your first gift to me, the gift of tears. I cry any time I please now. Charles used to say I could cry reading a telephone directory or a menu. I cried television commercials. You know the one where they bring home the new baby and the little boy is so displaced? Oh. I cried pep rallies at school. I taught in a school where football was second only to oxygen and important. And the pep rallies were somewhat akin to Broadway productions. And I would look at those young people who thought they had the world by the tail. I wish I could protect them. And God in his wisdom has made that impossible. They would develop no spiritual muscles at all if they had me, you know, going before them. And I cried and agreed to see her. And she's the one who sent me to you. Actually, she sent both of us. And we started out by going to AA open meetings. If anyone had the questionable judgment to invite me to Alamon, I was kind but cool. And I explained that I had not done the drinking, you see, so I did not need any therapy. And if, if I only had a sober husband, there would be no problems at my house. I can't say that with a straight face these days, but at the, t <laughs> at the time, I believed it with all my heart. In July of that year, we went to San Antonio for the 4th of July holiday. We had lived there for four years, and our babies were born there, and it's a very special place to us. And Charles got drunk, and he says, I must always say that it was not a slip, it was a carefully planned drunk. It was not the worst one or the longest one, and I know now that I wasn't at all surprised. I didn't really expect him to stop drinking. That attitude must have helped him a lot, too, don't you think? But I was driving home. He never drove drinking or hungover, to his credit. And he said, I'm going to have to tell my group about this. Do your groups give some memento of sobriety? Uh, we gave poker chip key rings for, you know, 30 days, 90 days. He said, I've got to tell the group about this because I'm due to get a six-month chip next week. And in my appalling ignorance, I said, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> and he explained to me that that isn't quite the name of the game. I have to tell you that because that's what got my attention. We had been married 14 years at that time, and this was a man who had never said to me, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I made a mistake. And he was going to go down there and say it to some people he had known six months. And that made me angry. <laughs> so I went back to take a look at them. See what kind of power they had. 
And I used to say, I don't know why the invitation of a particular woman, the invitation to go to Al-Anon, reached me when no one else has had. But I have done three, I think, very thorough and comprehensive inventories and fifth steps. And with the very first one, God told me more about myself than I was really interested in knowing. And uh, among the bits of insight I got was the reason why I heard this particular woman. And I have to tell you, rigorous honesty, this was someone I thought was as good as I was. And I'm sorry, I, you know, I'd rather it have been some more deeply spiritual reason than that. But I could hear her because she had money and prestige and status and brains and breeding, and I thought those things were very important. By the way, she still has everything I consider important, but it's certainly a different list today. And she became my sponsor for 11 years until she moved away. She was my sponsor. I'm always tempted to stop here and get on my soapbox about sponsorship. I will resist in the interest of time. But I will say that I don't understand the enormity of any ego that assumes that I don't need any help in doing this. And after 11 years, when she moved away, I got another sponsor. I think we have no place for gurus in this fellowship. We particularly have no place for people who go around talking in either fellowship who are not active members in their home groups and who have no sponsor. I don't know who counsels the counselor. My mother told me to be sure to marry a well-mothered man. She said all of his instincts about women and all of his first feelings were formed with his mother. And I did, and I recommend it. And I recommend that you get a well-sponsored sponsor. But that's another talk. We had, we had a very difficult and very stormy first two years in the program. We have an Al-Anon pamphlet entitled Living with Sobriety, and in it is written, Sobriety can be a welcome miracle, but it does not guarantee happiness. Charles was stark raving sober, very much aware of all of my defects of character. <laughs> he was no longer held back by guilt from mentioning them loudly and clearly and frequently. And it was an extremely difficult time for us. If you did not come in on a pink cloud, I want you to know that there are a lot of us who did not. And certainly sobriety is essential, but it is not enough. You see, during the drinking years, it's so easy for the spouse or mother, father, or son and daughter to think if he or she didn't drink, he would be the husband, father, son, daughter of my dreams. Because anything that was less than perfect, I could think, well, if he didn't drink. And, of course, when someone sobers up, he has to become the person he is. And I would hang on to those fantasies as long as I possibly could before I had to grant him the right to be the individual that he is. And, of course, I got to Al-Anon in pretty bad shape, too, and I'll bet you did. For one thing, I had to learn to express needs. I don't know about the people in your life, but the ones in my life failed their mind-reading courses. And if I don't tell them what I need, they're likely not to know. I used to think if you have to ask for it, it's no good. That's not true. And I learned that because you were willing to tell me what you need. And you didn't demand that I read your mind and then get angry because I didn't read it accurately. And so I can say today I need a hug. I can say when I get to a strange town, I'm starving. I've got to eat before we do anything else. I can say this is what I need. And I couldn't do that till you taught me how. I too that although I could not have verbalized it, during the years of the drinking, I somehow acted as if there were valves on all my feelings, you know, faucets, and I could turn off the one marked pain. I could turn off the one marked anger, the one marked self-pity. And what I didn't know is there's one valve and it's marked feelings. And I got to you emotionally frozen. You've literally loved me back to life. For a long time when I hurt in a new place, it would be some little frozen pocket of feeling that had not yet thawed. And as you know, it hurts when the feeling comes back after something has been frozen. I think we get in behind all kinds of defensive walls. A number of people in my group had said that during the drinking they had hidden. They had pulled down the shades, not answered the phone, not answered the doorbell. I went the other direction. I joined everything in town and ran most of them and... Uh, I had been with Alan on two or three weeks and no one had asked me to be president and my feelings were hurt. I thought you obviously didn't know who I was. My wall was the barrenness of busyness. That'll keep people away. 
you know, there are all kinds of walls. Compulsive talking is a wall. Those people never get to know us, and we don't really get to know them. But I have come to respect the fact that if you get here with some sort of defensive wall, you need it. And I no longer batter at people's walls. I used to, you know, let me in. I want to be your friend. I have come to think that's kind of an emotional rape. And I try not to force myself into your world until you're ready. I think sometimes that if someone looks out from the chink in his armor, we can smile and let him know the natives are friendly. And that perhaps if we are warm and loving enough, the bricks in the wall will thaw. That's what happened to me. And when they began to thaw, I began to hear you. Not one person and not all at once. But this sponsor I mentioned was gentle and firm. You see, if anyone had ever shouted at me, if anyone had ever told me to sit down and shut up, I would never have gone back. I don't hear you when you yell, and I will not be patronized. And God sent me exactly the kind of person I needed, who was gentle and firm, but a black belt Alanon. <laughs> and from her and from other people in my group, I began to hear things such as, do you realize you're sick? Will you accept that this is a family illness? When I finally agreed to that, I began to hear, well, do you want to get well? Even in scripture, no one could be healed who did not want to get well. Some people need their neuroses. And I looked at that one a long time. And when I said, yes, I do, I thought, and I will go to any length, just as an alcoholic will. I really, really want recovery. I don't want to be an obsessive, neurotic person all my life. If I had known then the lengths to which I would have to go, I might have turned and run. But I remember making that decision. You see, we were told, you don't hear the answer till you've asked the question. And a person who knows everything doesn't ask any questions. And I got there having all the answers. So it was a long time before I began to ask anything. And they said to me, we can't teach a person who already knows everything. Could you let go of some of your old ideas? I was going regularly to open AA meetings with my husband, and I would hear chapter 5 read. And I would hear this, this teaching that we have to let go of these preconceived notions. And my sponsor was saying, God can only fill an empty vessel. And she was saying, you cannot put new wine in an old bottle. And then I was teaching American literature. And Mark Twain said about his book, Huckleberry Finn, he said, it is better to follow a sound heart than a deformed conscience. And I realized that well-meaning people had deformed my conscience. And they had not meant to, but they had taught me things that are just untrue. Some of them, for instance. I was taught, and I'll bet you were, God helps those who help themselves. And he does not, you know. He helps those who ask. And at the times I needed him most desperately... I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it, and it very nearly did. God helps those who ask. And I was brought up, and I'll bet you were too, that mature, healthy, intelligent, strong people don't ask for help. I wouldn't ask for directions in a strange town. I would buy a map. I guess if I'd broken my leg, I would have tried to set it. I'm not sure. And you told me No. Babies are dependent, but adolescents are independent. Adolescents are, I'll have, I'll do it myself. And that mature people are interdependent. And that a healthy need is different from a sick dependency. I found out that some pain is necessary for my spiritual education, but misery is optional. And I do not opt to be miserable anymore. If you could see my long distance charges, you would know that I learned to ask for help. And I have never called out yet that there wasn't a hand there to hold when I reached out. You told me to take care of myself, and I heard you saying, eat right, get enough sleep. I had been with you a long time before I realized that you meant I have not only a right but a responsibility to take care of myself emotionally. That was hard to learn to do. I told you I had gotten all my feelings of self-worth by being the rescuer and being the one in control, the manager. And for you to tell me that I could take care of myself meant that I didn't have to put others first. You see, martyrdom, I think, is a symptom of untreated alimonism. I practically required plastic surgery to remove my hand from my forehead when I got to you. Because I had suffered so nobly all those years. 
I had a sponsor, this is my second one, the one I still have, who says in every situation ask yourself, one, what is in my best interest? And two, what will enable me to like myself later? She said, probably a hundred times, she said, you don't have to like any situation in the world, but it is imperative that you like yourself in it. And I do those things, and I say, what is in my best interest? And I say, what kind of action, what kind of words will make sure that I like myself later? I am not talking about me first. I am talking about my turn. And I didn't even know how to take that when I got to you. At the risk of sounding like a heretic, I will tell you that I even say no in Al-Anon. Every time that phone rings, it is not God calling. And I have to say no sometimes in order to have something to give you when I can say yes. I was brought up having been taught what you don't know can't hurt you. What I didn't know nearly killed four people. You know, what you don't know can kill you. There are dozens more. Those are examples. And I began to let go of these preconceived notions. And that's when I decided that I am a greedy person. I didn't want to settle for a spiritual band-aid. You know, you know the people who get to us and when the immediate pain is eased, that's all they ever want. And they don't want to look too deeply or climb too high. And I became so greedy for the program and I'm attracted to people who are greedy for it. And I don't like to settle for crumbs that fall from the table. I want the whole banquet. So you began to replace all those man-made rules I had followed with spiritual laws. As fast as I was able to grasp them and understand them, you told me the spiritual laws are just as real and just as irrevocable as the law of gravity. For instance, if I jump out of a tall building, I go down. I don't go up. And I have not broken the law of gravity. I have just illustrated it. Right? Okay, if I insist on holding a resentment, even a justified one, and all of mine are, you told me resentments will make you sick. And in my case, I have flare-ups of arthritis, and I have frequent and severe migraines. I have not broken that spiritual law that says resentments will make you sick. I have just illustrated it, and I seem to insist on illustrating it more often than you'd think I would, knowing better. I have learned that these spiritual laws are more difficult and more exacting than the ones I had been following. It's easier to stay within the speed limit and not to cheat on my income tax than it is to love you unconditionally. But I do that today because I choose to, and you have nothing to say about it. It's part of my therapy. If, as the scriptures say, God is love, and I believe that he is, and if, as they say, we were made in his image, and I believe that we were, then we were made for loving. And those other feelings are like throwing sand in an engine. We were really not meant to function on them. My loving you is a lot of fun for me, and it won't hurt you. I learned that the worst immorality is judgment. And it is the one with which I struggle most constantly. Of course I heard you telling me the basic Al-Anon teaching of all. Release that man. Get off his back. Get out of his way. Get to work on yourself. You didn't cause it. You can't cure it. You can't control it. You were told all those things. My group said if you don't like the work, let go of the fog. I did not then, nor do I now, let go easily of situations, of people, or circumstances. And every person I've ever released in my life has claw marks all over me, but uh, I'm better at it than I used to be. Sometimes I have to release with anger before I can with love. And sometimes I have to withdraw emotionally for a while before I can let go. But I do it the way I can, and the best that I can. And I found to my surprise, as I tried to let go of my husband and children, that they had their own direct line to God. I didn't know that. I thought he had to come through me. I had always told them God's will for their lives. They didn't even have to ask. <laughs> I think this is another symptom, by the way, of untreated Alanonism, this Russian and rescue. Today I can listen to your feelings without fixing you. Now, every cell of my being wants to fix you, but I do know better, and I can listen without lecturing, or judgment, or telling you what to do. When I found out that we don't give advice, in fact, that was they were adamant about that as being one of our principles, I thought, how can we help anybody? And of course, I, I had it explained to me that what we do is help people see what their options are. You see, when I got to Al-Anon, I thought I had three options. I could divorce this man. I could live with him while we both tried to recover in our programs. 
or I could have a close, warm, loving, communicative marriage. Unfortunately, number three was not one of my available options. And of course, it's the one I chose. And to this day, when I am miserable, it's because I have opted for something that is not an available option for me. And I need you to help me see what my options are and perhaps more important, what they are not. So that's one of the things that we do for each other. I tried to quit translating. Did you ever translate to your children? Now, honey, what your daddy meant was, you know, you have, I can tell. I decided they could just slug it out, toe-to-toe, the best they could. I have to tell you here that our son and daughter were in Alateens for 10 years each. They had intensive care. I could and did tell you at length when I got to you how this man had harmed those children. And you made me look at the many, many ways in which I had harmed them, and I almost couldn't stand that. I don't know how it was at your house, but at our house, these children were small because they were nine and ten when we got to the program. And I believe on some intuitive level, they knew there was something wrong with their father. As far as they could tell, he was asleep on the sofa anyhow. What could they tell about passed out? But what was wrong with that crazy woman who was yelling and screaming and throwing things, you know? I had a choice during those years. I could stay or not. Those kids had no choice. There is no way I can ever be grateful enough for the ten years of intensive care that you gave them. We cannot generalize, but for three years I was on the literature committee at World Service in New York. And we seriously talked every year about writing a pamphlet for Alateen on how to handle their resentment toward the non-alcoholic, because it is usually greater. And my children tell me even today, I try to remember that you were sick too. School teacher has to have a visual aid, so in letting go of these kids, and eventually of anything else, the only way I was able to do it was to picture them held in the hollow of God's hand, and to know I was not abandoning them, but by turning them or anything else over to God, I was leaving them in the care of the power who loves them even more than I can, and might possibly even know what was best for them better than I, although I was never sure of that second. But this is one thing that enabled me to release. And, of course, you told me that I was not responsible for the drinking I thought I was. As Seraphina said, he told me I was, so I assumed I was. And I was feeling such relief from that. And then you said, on the other hand, you are entirely responsible for your own behavior. And I didn't want to hear that. If you're married to an alcoholic, you have an automatic whipping boy. Anything that goes wrong can be blamed on the problem, capital P. And you took away my scapegoat. And I was angry about that for a while, and then I began to see that being responsible for myself was a freedom. You said you can respond rather than react. I had been in emotional slavery. If Charles got angry, I got angry. If he got depressed, I got depressed. I thought this meant we were close. (laughs) It's as if I woke up in the morning and said to him, Good morning, how do I feel today? Because it was entirely up to him. And you said, no, take your sails out of his wind. And you know, nobody decides today the direction in which I go. God and I do that the best we can, but I don't lay that responsibility on anyone else. And I learned that I did not acquire squatter's rights on someone's life because I married it or gave birth to it, and that it is not God's assignment to anyone on earth to make me happy. But that is my assignment. You told me that God was the source and people are the channels. And you said, don't look to people for what only God can provide. That no person can give you total love, total understanding, total acceptance. Only God can do that. And since he is the source, he is unchanging and the channels might change. And so I began to look to him for the needs that I had. And the channels have changed greatly through the years, but the source has not. It is unchanging and it is inexhaustible. He explained to me the difference in love and dependency. That, when we had been drinking, Charles would call the highway patrol to chase me down any time after 10 at night. That was not love. When he had me paid when I was shopping in department stores, that was not love, that was dependency. I always thought it looked like such total devotion. <laughs> and you said that any time we say, I love you, if, that isn't love. Perhaps respect has to be earned, but love is a gift. And I said, I can't love people that way. And my sponsor said, oh, you already love your children that way. 
And of course I do. There is nothing they could do to make me love them more. There's nothing they could do to make me love them less. It is a constant, and it has nothing to do with their behavior. And when I realized that, I began to think perhaps I can spread that around and love some other people in that manner. And I am able to do that most of the time today. I understand that it doesn't mean we're going to be best friends with everybody. But it means we will have impartial goodwill toward other people. And I really heard you when you said, we rarely get love on our terms, you know. Now, I am so verbally oriented. I wish I, I wish I were intuitive. I'm not good at body language. If you come to my house and you want to talk to me about being depressed, you're going to have to say, Blanche, watch my lips. I am depressed. <laughs> then I will say, oh, okay. But I won't know if you don't tell me. <laughs> and being that verbal, I wanted to hear I love you in those words. And some people and sometimes cannot say that. And you taught me how to listen for love. I remember when my son was 15, he didn't communicate much then. He grunted a lot. Do you remember that? <laughs> how was your day? Oh. <laughs> but he came in one day and threw his books down and said, I'm glad you're not just some dumb broad like most of the dingling women I see. <laughs> and I heard, I love you. It was poetry. That was music. When a student would say, I don't like English, but this is my favorite class. Or, I can't write poems, but here, I wrote these for you. I could hear I love you. And our daughter, who was about 17 along about then, and could only cook one thing, and she said, would you like spaghetti for supper? I could hear I love you. The other side of that coin is that I'm not allowed to show it on my terms either. The same son is 6'3". I think he's been that tall all his life. Surely not. But if I could, I would still fold him up and get him in my lap and cuddle and coo, and he would just die. So I have learned, when he was still living at home, not to say who was that on the phone, who was that letter from, you know? And later on, when he had his own apartment, I learned to tell him I loved him by not saying, why did a girl answer your phone at 7.30 in the morning? <laughs> I try to show love on terms the other person can accept and with which he is comfortable. Listen, I didn't learn this all at once. I can tell it to you so much more quickly than I learned it. And certainly I don't still have it all. I learned it slowly and painfully, incident by incident, one day at a time. And there are still days when I think, what program? God who? And when that happens, I call one of you. And you will tell me what program, and you will tell me God who, usually in the words that I use to tell you. Don't you hate that? When somebody says, well, as you told me, and I don't do that to me. Don't quote me to me. I don't want to hear it. But I need someone to tell me that practice makes progress, not perfection. And that, yes, the illness is progressive, but thank God recovery is progressive, too. And the more of it we get, the more we can get. Of course, I talk the talk better than I walk the walk. And I walk the walk better than I feel the feeling. But I'm still the best friends that I have ever had. And I have to say to those of you who are new, new people just awe me today. I mean, they had this program running, and they learned so much so fast. Now, I figured out a reason for that. Twenty years ago, we didn't have us. Make sense to you? Okay. <laughs> we had one hardback book, 20 pamphlets, and my sponsor had 13 months in Alamon, and I thought she knew everything. We were the blind leading the blind. Twenty years ago, it was not in to be alcoholic. It was not trendy, and uh, as it seems to have become. And I want you to know, those of you who are new, that I live on the growing edge, too. It is my belief that we either progress in the program or we regress. I don't think we stay in the same place. And I live on the edge of learning, and what I am learning may be at a deeper level than what you're learning, but it's just as new and scary to me. That's whatever your learning is to you. And I need a hand to hold while I look around corners. And I've never reached out, but there, there hasn't been one there. I've got to hurry. These children are fine today. Thank you. I mean, literally, thank you. Our daughter is 30. She's a reporter for United Press International. She lives in New Orleans, in the New Orleans UPI Bureau. 
Now, that's a place as humid as Honolulu. <laughs> Just thought how similar. <laughs> she was married a few years ago. And this is a girl who never gave us a minute's trouble in her life. Not that this was trouble. But I always think it's important to say that these kids never did drugs. They don't drink. I was telling someone last night they've never even had a cavity. I want you to know that your care of them <laughs> helped heal the god-awful damages that we did them. And they are great kids. And that can happen even in alcoholic homes. And you need to know that. And I, I try, I hesitate to say it because it sounds as if I'm bragging. I don't take credit for it, okay? I'm grateful for it. She was married a few years ago, and because you never turned loose of her, she grew up thinking that um, she could be who she was. And she said, you know, there's no rule that says your attendant in a wedding has to be a girl. And the person I love most in the world is my brother, and I'm going to ask him to stand with me in my wedding. Well, I opened my mouth to share the benefit of my wisdom with her. <laughs> but her brother said, that's fine, I've never been a bride's person before. <laughs> The groom said, well, in that case, I'm really closer to my sister than I am my brother. You're way ahead of me. So we had a best woman and a man of honor. And it was a beautiful wedding. It was performed by a lovely young woman who is an ordained minister, but her denomination does not let her preach. She's a chaplain in a hospital. And I sat there crying in the time-honored fashion of the mother of the bride. But I was thinking sobriety made this possible. Because I remember when those two young people almost couldn't speak to each other. I remember when my own brothers came to visit, my daughter would say, You hugged your brother. Yuck! And this was the person she loved most in the world and the one she wanted to be with her. My son is a commercial photographer in Dallas. He is doing very well. I see him often at the airport because when I leave Texas, I change planes in Dallas. If you leave Texas, you go to Dallas first. We have decided when you die, before you go to heaven or hell, you will go to Dallas first. <laughs> so when I have time at the airport, he comes out and sits with me. Now, we date the people we meet, right? And the people he meets happen to be models. So he usually has one of these gorgeous young things with him. They all weigh 36 pounds and have legs up to their armpits. <laughs> I have told him, if I want to feel frumpy, I can stay home and iron, you know? I don't need that. <laughs> These children are good to me. In the very old-fashioned sense of the word, they are so good to me. Now, I'm going to have to tell you something that I'm afraid you're going to hear is bad news. Please don't. Please hear this as what was necessary next for my recovery and for Charles. We really lost our marriage in about 1977 for a variety of reasons that it would not be at all appropriate for me to go into from behind a podium. But I can tell you that we tried diligently for about the next three years to put it back together. It was like giving artificial respiration to a corpse. It was It was useless. We had nothing to go back to. Marriages made in sickness often do not survive help. And because people who love us want to know, I've taken to saying, no, he did not lose me for another woman. No, I did not throw him out for another man. No, he did not resume drinking. He had 20 years sobriety in July. Our recovery had taken us down different roads and in different directions. But more than that, something toxic seems to happen when we try to relate to each other that does not happen when we relate to other people. It had become a very destructive relationship, and we love each other too much to destroy each other. And you know, if any people in the world can know, we know that love is not always enough. We knew that we could not gain any further recovery within the framework of a marriage that had been damaged beyond repair, that was sick beyond healing. But it was April of 1980 before we were able to release each other with love and respect, dignity. We really did. To find new lives and new directions. The divorce was final in August of that year. Now, we have tried to remain friendly, but I would be lying if I said we were friends. We are not. Friends joy in each other's presence. Friends share feelings. 
If we could have been friends, we could have stayed married. It is possible to live with a friend. I have no understanding of divorced people who are friends. But I am quick to tell you that there is no villain. No one is wearing a black hat. Now, lest you think this sounds like a storybook divorce, I will tell you that I am enraged that this man is able with his new friends and as of a year ago a new wife to do and be everything we always wanted him to do and be. And he either could not or would not within the framework of our marriage. That is not mine to know. It just seems to me that these people are getting effortlessly everything we yearned for for 30 years. Now, on my senior days, and I have more of those all the time, I, of course, rejoice in this evidence of his recovery. But the rest of the time, I'm just mad as hell that he didn't do this in time to save our own marriage. Nobody wants divorce. No one I know gets married planning to be divorced. I had planned for us to grow old together, to watch our grandchildren playing, to put our teeth in the same glass on the nightstand. This was not in my game plan. But I have never been more helpfully Al-Anon than when I decided I would go to any lengths for my recovery. These children have been mutually supportive. On the day that Charles moved into a new apartment, his, into his new apartment, our son flew out from Dallas to help him. And he alternated moving something out of the house for his father and holding me while I cried. And then he would move out something else and then he would sit on the sofa and hold me while I cried. It was our daughter who called two weeks after the divorce was final on the day that would have been our 30th anniversary and said, I know this has been a very difficult day for you. Ending a 30-year marriage is like an imputation. It may be necessary for survival, so the agony is intense. And there is phantom pain where the relationship used to be. Now, you told me that I did not have the right to back God into a corner and shake my finger in his face and say, why me? You said I must always ask, what am I supposed to understand? That the tragedy of suffering is not that it happens, but that we let it be wasted. And so I have been asking these four years now, what am I supposed to understand? All of the answers are not in. I keep learning a little more all the time, but I do know a few. I'm supposed to understand that I don't have to know what the future holds because I know who holds the future. I'm supposed to understand that God and I are enough. And, and this is a milestone for a woman of my generation, that I'm a whole person without a man. And that means that any man in my life today is there because we both want it that way, and not because either one of us has a loose umbilical cord that we're trying to plug in somewhere. We're not hunting a life support system, you know? I can only make one major decision a year. So it was the next year, 1981, when I decided I would be better off living somewhere else, not because Charles was ever unkind or unpleasant. He was not. But because it was painful for me. I could not divorce emotionally. And so I began hunting a graduate school. And I remembered living in San Antonio and how we had loved the hill country. So I went back there and I started investigating. And the one that had what I wanted, which was a master's degree in counseling psychology, this is educational psychology, not the white knife kind of thing, okay? <laughs> this is at the University of Texas in Austin. So I moved there in June of 1982, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I had to sell the house that my children grew up in. I remember when the, when the men came out to uh, appraise it. I remember thinking, they're looking at it as if it was just an object. They're so impersonal. They're measuring. They're, don't they know? Sure, of course they didn't know. And I found out that anywhere I live is God's house and that I could take the memories with me. But I left my comfort zone. And I don't think I realized how hard that would be. You would laugh to see me in graduate school. I keep wanting to teach the class. The professor doesn't explain it adequately, and I want to say, now, honey, what he meant was. <laughs> I keep wanting to correct the professor's grammar. I do have better sense than that, although I have relapses once in a while, and I haven't done that yet. <laughs> I would like you to think that I miss teaching because I miss enlightening the youth of America. But what I miss is spending eight hours a day with people who thought I was pretty neat. That's what I miss very much. I have gone from a position of some respect and prestige to absolutely zilch. I don't mean that they aren't polite, they are. But I mean that these young people do not part like the Red Sea when I walk down the hall, as they had in the past. 
And I have missed that trend of validation. But you told me 20 years ago that I was going to be all right. And I believed you then and I do now. Some years ago I was listening to a fifth step. And a man talking with me said that when his children were little, he had been so obsessed with his wife's drinking that he had not been able to enjoy their childhood. He said, I missed all the present moments. And I liked that phrase. And I decided I don't want to miss any present moments. I want to be alive and with you forever. Now, Tommy Greenup in Winnipeg says that the way you don't miss the present moment is to ask yourself, how am I conscious of God right now, this minute? And that way you don't miss it. Well, I'm conscious of God right now, this minute, because you did what I asked you to. You loved me back while I was talking. And I do thank you for that, and I thank you for being who you are and whose you are.